1: Other side of midnight with Frank Murano.
0: You may remember this stirring score from what many people believe is the greatest Star Trek film ever made. Other people believe it is the greatest sequel ever made, possibly on par with The Godfather Part II or The Empire Strikes Back. Others believe that it was the greatest film Ricardo Montalban ever made. What is not subjective is that it was the film debut of Kirstie Alley, who brilliantly portrayed Savick in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. The man that uh, directed, and even though he's not credited, wrote that film, is also the man who had a large hand in writing another one of Star Trek's most popular films, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. And my probably personal favorite out of any Star Trek film and one of my favorite films ever Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. He is a gifted novelist, screenwriter, director, and producer uh, who has done a lot more than just Star Trek. But for those of us that are Trekkies or Trekkers, uh, that's why he always maintains a special place in our heart. It is my great pleasure to welcome Nicholas Meyer. Uh, Mr. Meyer, it is a great thrill to talk with you. I've been a fan for literally decades.
1: (laughs) The decade part makes me a little nervous, but thank you.
0: Well, you know, with the amount of messing around with time travel that you've done in your career, you know that uh, a decade's never really a decade, right? What's a decade or two in the grand scheme of things?
1: And A kiss is just a kiss.
0: <laughs> exactly. So um, you... Had uh, quite an impressive career uh, and do still have as a as a novelist and uh, and then made that transition transition from novelist to screenwriter for people that spend a lot of time and are up late listening to us because they're spending a lot of time uh, slaving over a computer or a word processor. How did you find that transition of writing for the printed page in the form of novels to transitioning to the world of screenwriting?
1: Well, you've got it backwards. I was a screenwriter who became a novelist only when the Writers Guild went on strike, and we weren't allowed to write screenplays. I was writing television movies, The Night That Panicked America, and Judge D. and The Haunted Monastery, um, and my career was just starting to get off the ground. When the Writers Guild went on strike and you weren't allowed to write screenplays, you had to go... Uh, carry a picket sign outside studios and um, come home and then stare at the wall because there was nothing else to do. And the woman with whom I was living at the time said, now you can write that Sherlock Holmes book you keep talking about, hmm. which was my idea of Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud. Uh, well, and that,
0: uh, no, I'm that sorry. That book
1: became a 7% solution, and that's how I became a – Novelist, but I was a screenwriter first.
0: Oh, I, I see. I didn't know that. I appreciate the. Uh, I appreciate the correction. And I've oh, always, okay. I, I've always really enjoy. And I read the Seven Percent Solution, and I thought the premise was uh, very interesting. It's not just a, a rank and file chance meeting of Sherlock Holmes and Sigmund Freud. Sherlock Holmes is dealing with some uh, a lot of problems that you don't necessarily associate with a famous literary character.
1: Well, if you if you read. Conan Doyle as and the Sherlock Holmes stories as written. I'm not talking about the movies. I'm I'm a I'm a Doyle purist. I'm a Sherlock Holmes purist. You will learn in the second Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, the sign of the four that Holmes is a cocaine addict, and it is the premise of the Seven Percent Solution that Watson gets him to Vienna for a cocaine withdrawal cure. From Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, by the way, was also had been a cocaine user for a time. He used it to treat depression and he got off it um, after a friend of his died from it. Um, And so it seemed like an inevitable matchup. I didn't learn until way after the novel was written and the movie was made that uh, Freud actually enjoyed really reading Sherlock Holmes stories. They were his bedside reading, which really? I think was, hilarious. yep.
0: Wow. Yep. And I should mention you were actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Screenplay for the 7% Solution. True. True. Yeah. Uh, So your directorial debut deals with another very odd pairing, Uh, although these are real life figures as opposed to one fictional and one real life. And that's uh, the work that you did on Time After Time, which I think still holds up as well more than four decades after it came out, as it did when it was released. And if people haven't seen the film, it deals with a a meeting of H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper and some time traveling that they do to another century. This was the first film that you ever directed. I I had read, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this one, that um, you had written the screenplay for this and you weren't going to agree to sell the screenplay unless you got the opportunity to direct. Is that true? And why was directing this picture so important?
1: Well, directing was my goal. Someone said that, you know, going to Hollywood, wanting to be a screenwriter was like wanting to be co-pilot. You really want to be in the director's uh, chair. And I had used this sort of leapfrog method before. I refused to let the 7% solution, my novel, be sold to the movies unless I got to write the screenplay. And so I just did the same thing here. I wrote the screenplay and I wouldn't let that be sold unless I got to direct the movie. Um, And Orson Welles said that directing a movie is the biggest set of electric trains that any kid ever (laughs) play with. Um, So yeah, that's how that came about.
0: Is there a difference when you approach writing for a character that really existed, like H.G. Wells or Sigmund Freud, versus writing for somebody that has always been fictional, like Sherlock Holmes?
1: The short answer to that is, in my book, you should pardon the expression, no. Um, If you are writing a novel or writing a movie, and by movie, we're talking about a feature film – This implies in both cases that you're dealing with fiction or a fictionalized treatment. To give you the long-winded answer, if if you're writing a history or you're writing a biography, the people who read the history or the biography are entitled to believe that your book is as true as historical research can make it. But once you call it a movie and once you call it a novel— everybody understands that all bets are off. The problem, if I may add, is that in a post-literate age, uh, people tend to get their information from movies Mm. and television and think that those things are real. For example, if you watch The Deer Hunter, which is a wonderful movie, you may come away believing that the Viet Cong made American POWs play Russian roulette. But as good as the movie is, There's no evidence that the Viet Cong ever made any American POWs play Russian roulette. That's Michael Cimino's invention. That's a movie. That's fiction.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I I think there are a whole bunch of people over the last 10 years that have a misunderstanding of how Hitler died after seeing the Quentin Tarantino film Inglorious Bastards*. So it's important to reiterate that uh, the history that you probably
1: probably died after seeing the movie. (laughs)
0: <laughs> hey, um, I am a huge fan of uh, Time After Time, not only because of uh, the story and because it's so clever, but the magnificent performances of, of the actors in that uh, in that picture. Malcolm McDowell, uh, David Warner, Mary Steenburgen and the the back and forth, the chemistry between the characters of Wells and Jack the Ripper is just absolutely electric.
1: We don't belong here. On the contrary, the Herbert. A documentary, Cam- I belong here completely and utterly. I'm home. It's you who do not belong here. You, with your absurd notions of a perfect and harmonious society. It's drivel. The world has caught up with me and surpassed me. 90 years ago I was a freak. Today I am an amateur.
0: It's still so stirring uh, listening to uh, David Warner who unfortunately passed away recently. Uh, obviously we don't we're not 100% sure who Jack the Ripper was, but is there any actual historical evidence that H.G. Wells and any of the candidates for the real Jack the Ripper may have known one another?
1: The short answer to that is no. I my long-winded, all my answers are long-winded, is that I wasn't really interested in either the real H.G. Wells or the real Jack the Ripper. They were sort of stand-ins in my imagination for two aspects of human behavior, the constructive and the destructive. Wells you know, yes, there are sort of certain outlines of him that are, I tried to make accurate, but I wasn't really obsessed with it. He was, to me, a forward-looking, progressive, small p uh, kind of guy who believed in the betterment of humanity or or at least purported to. And the Ripper was a stand-in for every malign, malignant psychotic aspect of human behavior, which is now unfortunately on the rise.
0: Uh, Talking with Nicholas Meyer, novelist, screenwriter, got a new book out, which we'll talk about in a minute. It's called uh, The Return of the Pharaoh. But uh, those of us that are Star Trek fans, uh, Mr. Meyer, we credit you with uh, saving and revitalizing the franchise of uh, Star Trek films with your incredible direction uh, with of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, a film that many people still regard as the best Star Trek film ever and uh, which is responsible for so many iconic Star Trek scenes like this one.
1: I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting. I shall leave you as you
0: left me, as you left her, in my room for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive buried alive. Come! Come! Were you a fan of Star Trek the TV series prior to your professional involvement with the franchise?
1: I had never seen it. Um, When I was a kid and it was on television and I'd be channel surfing, um, I I, I missed everything that was important about it. I missed the idea of human beings of different genders and races getting together together. To solve problems in a cooperative fashion. All I saw was the cheesy costumes, the guy with the pointy ears, <laughs> and and the funny looking sets. And I, you know, typical me. It just it all went right by me. So I I knew nothing about it. Um, then I was introduced to Harve Bennett, who was the producer of the movie, and um, we got along very well. And he started to show me uh, the different episodes. And then he showed me the first movie and I, I, you know, I still sort of didn't get it except that it it reminded me of something that I couldn't put my finger on for a while. What was it that I really liked about all this? And then I remember those books I remembered read when I was about 12 about captain Horatio Hornblower, the captain in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Mm. Wars who had all these adventures and he had a girl in every port and that sounded cool to a 12 year old. And I thought, well, wait a minute. This is hornblower in outer space. I I could figure out how to do that. This is just about the navy. This is submarines and and destroyers and so you know that was how I approached it. I still didn't understand it until 30 years later when I started looking at it. Uh, oh, wait a minute. This is an interracial cast. This is an, you know, there are are women in positions of command. And, you know, all that stuff just had gone right by me.
0: A, A lot of us that are fans of Star Trek, we watched the first Star Trek film, Star Trek, the motion picture. And for the most part... It's tough to get through. It's and again, I'm being charitable. There's a lot of great parts to it, but it's it's pretty boring. It's pretty dry. Did you did you see that film prior to your helmsmanship of Star Trek II? And did you realize that artistically, stylistically, story wise, that everything needed to change after that?
1: The short answer to that is yes. But I'd like to say in the same breath that. I'm not in a position to knock that movie. Somebody had to go boldly sure. where had gone before, and the movie was enormously helpful to me in in just in reacting to things that you know that I didn't want to do. Um, so, and, and and Robert Wise, you know, has forgotten more about making a movie than I'll learn in three lifetimes. So it's not an, an I, I, you know I can't be knocking it. But what I did think was gee, this is awful dry. There isn't a joke anywhere in it. And I always go look. That's what Tom Stoppard says. He says, the first thing I go looking for is the (laughs) jokes. Um, And the other thing was that when I see movies of the space station, people are floating and it doesn't look like a Holiday Inn to me. So when I see the Star Trek TV show and the movie, they're all walking down carpeted places and i think no that's not the kind of submarine destroyer navy world that that i want to see or that i think is you know maybe it's a defect in my imagination maybe maybe by the 20th century they'll all be walking down carpets out there i don't know but uh, i reacted against all that and wanted the sets to be small. I wanted them to be dirtier. If I'd had my way, it would look more like the spaceship Nostromo in Alien. But I couldn't do that because I was working with hand-me-down sets. So all I could do was add a lot of blinking lights and make them smaller and, and sort of dirty them up.
0: That's why your desire to see different things in a space opera than were depicted in Star Trek, the TV series, or that first Star Trek film, I, I think that's one of the reasons that zero gravity scene in Star Trek Six is just so cool, because for a show in a universe that was set in space, we'd never really seen anything in the way of zero gravity, and the way that you did that was just so uh, so clever. So uh, I, I can definitely see your your tastes manifesting itself into the product that, uh, that came out on screen. True or false, the ar- two early versions of the title of Star Trek II were The Revenge of Khan and The Undiscovered Country.
1: Uh, true. Um, I called the, the, the Star Trek II, I called it The Undiscovered Country. The Undiscovered Country is a line from Hamlet. It is about the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. That's death. And this was a movie about the death of Spock. So I thought that was a pretty elegant title. And then I got a phone call or my assistant came to see me while we're frantically trying to get this movie ready for, an, <laughs> they booked it in the theaters and there wasn't even a movie yet. And she says, gee, I think they've changed the title of the movie. I said, no, that's impossible. She goes, no, I think there's a guy in, in New York who's an executive. And and uh, I said, get him on the phone. <laughs> and <laughs> I get him on the phone. I said, Mr. Mancuso, this is Mr. Meyer. I'm the writer-director of Star Trek II. Is it is it true that you've changed the name of the movie? And he goes, uh, yes, it is. And I said, have you read the script? He said, no, I have not. I said, have you um, seen any of the dailies? He said, no, I have not. I said, well, don't you think it would have been a little tactful, a little diplomatic to touch base with me as the creator of the film before changing the title? And he said, uh, oh, and he—I was told that the movie was going to be called The Revenge of Khan, The Revenge of Khan. And I said, "I love. Can I ask you another question?" I said, "Are you aware that Paramount Pictures does a lot of business with George Lucas uh, over the Indiana Fr- Jones franchise?" He goes, "Yes, I am aware of that." I said, "Do you know that Mr. Lucas is making a movie called The Revenge of the Jedi?" <laughs> you think he's going to be very happy with the vengeance of Khan? And he goes, I assure you that won't be a problem. And the next thing you know, I got Barry Diller yelling at me, who the hell knows what Roth is? Who knows what Roth is? What a stupid title. I said, you're talking to the wrong guy. It wasn't me. So when it came time to do Star Trek VI, and I had a little more clout after three of these things, I said, God damn it. This is going to be the, rest, the the undiscovered country. And no one's going to
0: stop me. <laughs> I'm glad you got to use that title, and, uh, and that, that we're, we're the beneficiaries of that. Now, uh, Christy Alley, as I mentioned, that was her film debut. Uh, both she and Shatner have talked about in subsequent years how, while they're very friendly now, they didn't get along too well in the course of that film. Some of the other cast members have raised issues with, uh, you know, with various Shatnerian aspects of his behavior. Um, Obviously you work with, with Shatner on several films. Um, Can you understand why some of the actors might've been rubbed the wrong way by some of his, his behavior on set? Or do you think that was all kind of just making a mountain out of a molehill?
1: It's a very complicated question. What you have is seven actors who were working actors with greater or lesser degrees of success, who back in the 1960s were picked by the fickle finger of fate to work together as supposedly this perfectly meshed crew of the Starship Enterprise. And although none of them planned it, they were going to be joined at the hip, whether they wanted to or not, for the rest of their lives. And there may have been years where nothing was happening and they were opening supermarkets or whatever, but they couldn't get away from it. And I would be very surprised if even a close-knit family didn't have issues Mm. over years and years and years. The other thing I would say is I'm busy directing the movie. Sure. That's a 24-7 uh, occupation. You you really don't get to sleep. And you don't notice a lot of things that are going on outside the frame. You don't have time for that. At some point, somebody said to me while we were doing Time After Time, said, I think Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen are falling in love. And I said, no, no, no. I'm just like a really good director. <laughs> I didn't know. So if you could imagine people falling in love and the director not knowing it, and you could easily imagine people falling into something else, quite the opposite. And the director still doesn't know it because when, they're, when you call action, this is what they're doing. Sure. They're acting. They're part of the crew. I
0: I could talk with you all day about this stuff, but I have to ask you, I understand you're in the midst of launching a new dramatic podcast that's sort of a a prequel to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, that focuses on Khan's life on SETI Alpha 5. What can you tell us about it?
1: Well, about eight years ago, uh, Alex Kurtzman, who is very heavily involved in the Star Trek business, I didn't even, you know, I I didn't even know what the word franchise meant when I directed Star Trek II. But you know, it's it's big business. It's it's all Star Trek twenty four all the time. And he said to me, this is six or seven years ago. What happened to Khan on C D Alpha Five? Kirk deposited him on a paradise planet, and something obviously went wrong, and some of it was, you know, a a nearby planet exploded and wrecked the orbit of CD-Alpha 5. But how did Khan deal with what happened to him? And I thought this was a brilliant idea. And I said, please let me write this. And I wrote three one-hour scripts for, you know, television movies or streaming as we now call it. And for whatever reason, and trust me, they were stupid reasons, it wasn't made. Um, and years went by, and Alex and I always had a sort of a hair up our tush about this thing. And then one day he said to me, guess what? Paramount's doing podcasts, which, you know, is sort of a fancy name at this point for radio plays. Sure. Uh, I used to direct radio plays in college, so I said, yum, yum. Um, and he said, let's take these three scripts and make them into, you know, a radio series. And I said, great. And that's what it's about.
0: Well, Do we have a timetable for that? I can't wait to hear that.
1: Well, the funny part of the timetable is I've been waiting for the past five months for the contract <laughs> to close between me and Paramount Pictures. <laughs> and the thing is, the reason it takes so long is that everybody in business affairs is so terrified now of making a mistake and giving away the store in all these new venues, that they keep saying, well, what else can we insist is covered in this contract? Not only this galaxy, but any galaxy yet to be discovered from time. If there were time travel, it has to be retroactive If we go forward. You get the
0: picture. <laughs> I do indeed. Uh, Mr. Meyer, I could talk with you all day, and I have a lot of questions about Star Trek Six, about Return of the Pharaoh, about uh, the day after. I, I, if you're willing, uh, I hope we could do this again in a, in a week or two and continue the conversation because this has been a real treat for me. I'd be delighted. Thank you. Nicholas Meyer, Uh, you can check out the new book, the new novel, The Return of the Pharaoh. You can get it uh, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can also go to Nicholas-Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R dot com. It's available on uh, on there. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you want to comment, 800-848-9222, straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of midnight. Midnight.